0: Good morning, everyone. I wonder as you came into the building this morning, I wonder how you chose who to speak to. I wonder when you came into this room, how did you choose where to sit? Or more particularly, how did you choose who to sit with? I wonder who you spoke with when you sat down. And I wonder how you chose that. I wonder whether you chose not to sit with someone. I wonder who you chose not to talk to. And I wonder how you decided that. And I wonder as you think about the people sitting around you right now, I wonder who impresses you the most. Who would you rate as the most important? Who would you choose to be the most valuable? And how would you make those sort of choices? What's driving those choices, I wonder? Are they uncomfortable questions? I hope so. They ought ought to be uncomfortable questions because we don't think like that. We're Christians. We're a church family. We don't decide who's more important than who. We don't decide who's more valuable than who. We certainly don't give more time to people we consider better than those that we consider worse. That would be terrible. That would be the very opposite to how Jesus lived and loved. And yes, it would. But sadly, you know, that's often exactly the way we think and act. Because sadly and tragically, we are often more conformed to the way of our worlds than we are to the way of Jesus. Sadly and tragically, we are too often polluted by our worlds. In fact, that's exactly where we left off with James last time at the end of chapter 1, and it's where we pick up again at the beginning of chapter 2. Like last time, last Sunday, James is still calling upon us to be doers of the word. He's still on, if you like, his anti-pollution drive. And he's got one symptom of worldly pollution well and truly in his sights. So it'd be great to have your Bible open at James chapter 2. There's an outline of the talk on the inside of the bulletin, and how about I pray and ask God to help us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for your word. We thank you again, Father, that your word is living and active like a two-edged sword. Father, we thank you that your, heart, that your word often exposes our hearts and our minds, And it's right, Father, that we approach your word with fear and trembling, but also with trust and confidence. And, Father, we want to pray this morning that you might help us to deal honestly with you as you deal honestly with us. Most of all, Father, of course, we want to pray that in hearing your word this morning, we would not merely hear it, but that we would do it. And we need your help by your spirit to be those sorts of people. And so we pray for your help. In Jesus' name. Amen. Point one on your outline. And uh, at the heart of our passage today is a command. It's really a very straightforward command. It's pretty easy to spot. Pretty sure if I said to you, what's the command? You'd be able to tell me, but just in case I'm not going to. In fact, though, it's the very first thing we read there in verse 1. Have a look at it with me. Verse 1 My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. That's the command at the heart of our passage today. Do not show partiality. Don't treat people merely on the basis of outward appearance. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't make value judgments about people based on external things. Do not show favoritism. It's a very straightforward command before us today. Nothing too complicated, easy to understand. But before you relax, remember the danger we were warned about last time. It's not enough to understand this command. What counts is obedience. We must be doers of God's word, not merely hearers and the command before us today is do not show favoritism and you know for the christians that james was first writing to that was clearly an issue they were battling with but it's not their issue alone it's ours too because the cultural air that we we live and breathe is all about judging by appearance You think about it, we have a desperate fascination with how we look, how we appear to others. Why does it matter so much? Because we know that we judge others by their appearance and so we want to be judged well positively by them. Favoritism like James is condemning is part of the pollution of our world that we are to avoid. So the command that we need to hear and obey is do not show favoritism. James, though, he doesn't just give the command, he gives the example as well. Point two and verse two. He writes, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. There's the example that James throws up for us. It's one that fits as well in our setting here in early church as it did back for James's first readers. Two people arrive for church, one outwardly impressive, one outwardly unimpressive what would partiality look like in that example we keep reading verse three if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say here's a good seat for you but say to the poor man you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts See, what would the partiality that James is condemning look like? A value judgment based on appearance. The finely dressed person is valued more highly and therefore treated with respect and honor. The shabbily dressed person is not valued and is treated with contempt. And in James' example, that's that's seen in where they're seated. Seat of honor for the one judged honorable, Seat of shame for the one judged shameful. But I wonder how this example would play out in our setting. Maybe it would be the warmth of the greeting given by the people on greeting at the door. The finely dressed person, nice clothes, neat hair, nice perfume. They're welcomed warmly, a a shake of the hands, an introduction, some friendly questions. I wonder though if the warmth of the welcome would be Affected if the person was shabbily dressed, not nearly so neat, maybe didn't smell quite so good. I wonder if you were greeting, okay? Put yourself there at the front door. If you were greeting, whether you might be in danger of showing partiality, favoritism. Or maybe it's the, at the end of our meeting here this morning, over morning tea, and you decide who you're going to give your time to. How do you make that decision? What are your judgments based on? Do you make value judgments based on appearance? Would the person with shabby clothes and bad smell, would they receive the same attention from you as the person with nice clothes and nice smell? Would the celebrity receive the same attention as the non-celebrity? This is the area, okay, that James wants to dig around with us. This is the word we are to not merely listen to but to obey. And brothers and sisters, we need to be honest, don't we? Rich people are more valued in our world far more highly than poor people. Rich people are always treated better in our world than poor people. Seen many poor people on the cover of the magazines at the supermarket lately? Heard the opinions of poor people being valued in our our media lately? Noticed any poor people in government lately? Not many people aspire to poverty. Lots of people aspire to wealth. And the way of the world is to honour wealth and honour the wealthy, the ones who can look the best. And the way of the world is to equate wealth with value. The way of the world is to assume wealthy people are more valuable than poor people. And you know what? It's so easy to be polluted by that value system so easy for James's first r- readers back in the first century they got themselves into the most ridiculous of situations where they were in fact favoring the very same people who were giving them a hard time and even slandering the name of Jesus that's how insidious this pollution is look at James's outrage in verse 6 is it not the rich who are exploiting you are they not the ones who are dragging you into court Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name to him to whom you belong? It's crazy. Crazy. But that's how deep the value system of the world had infected the value system of those Christians James was first writing to. Even though the rich were exploiting them and persecuting them, they were still favoured, shown the best seats, treated with more honour than poor people. And that's an ever-present danger even to us. Our world is no different essentially to that world. And we are unessentially different to those people back then. We are just as much in danger of showing the same foolish favoritism. But you see, you glance back to the end of chapter 1, don't you? You glance back to the end of chapter 1 and verses 26 and 27, and you see there that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. What God demands of his people is that they keep themselves from being polluted by the world. We are not to be like the world in our value system. This church family is not to be polluted and stained by the way of the world. What God accepts as pure and faultless is no favoritism. None of that foolish judging by appearance. But maybe you're wondering, well, why does it matter so much? And why does it matter so much to God? And that's a good question. And James answers it for us very clearly in these verses. James spells out the importance of these things. And he does that by spelling out three uh, key truths, key truths that make this command matter so much so point three on your outline and the first key truth to notice in this passage actually comes packaged with the command and maybe when we were looking at verse one you were wondering why we didn't deal with it then if you were wondering well done but come back with me now to verse one and have a look at it my brothers and sisters as believers in our glorious lord jesus christ don't show favoritism can you see it This command to not show favoritism, it wasn't given to just anybody. It was given to believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It was given to those who believe in the Lord of glory. Christ Jesus, who rose from the dead and ascended into his glory to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's who we believe in. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ whose splendor is incomparable. He is the Lord of glory. His glory transcends all other glory. It certainly transcends earthly glory. It certainly transcends the earthly glory of riches and fine clothes. See, a torch is very impressive on a dark night, isn't it? But a torch is very unimpressive in the middle of the day. It's transcended, it's swamped by the glory of the sun. And as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, how could we possibly be bedazzled? How could we possibly be deceived and enticed by the glory of other humans? That's nonsense. Our focus is on the glory of the Lord Jesus and all other lesser glories, all other distinctions are transcended by that glory. They're swamped by it, they become Meaningless. You see, as we meet that person, we don't value them on the basis of what they look like. We don't value them on the basis of their wealth. We don't measure their glory at all because we are totally absorbed and distracted by the glory of Jesus. And that's what shapes our value system. That's who shapes our value system. That's who shapes our thinking. My brothers and sisters, verse one, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Don't be trapped and deceived by the so-called glory of humans. It's the glory of Jesus, which is the first key key truth to notice about why this command matters so much. But of course, how is it that we are even connected to the glory of Jesus? How is it that we can even appreciate the glory of Jesus? That's the second key truth that makes favoritism so unacceptable among Christians. Verse 5, verse 5. James says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? You see, God's value system is entirely at odds with the world's value system. God chooses people who are poor in the eyes of the world to inherit his kingdom, to inherit the glory of Jesus. God's value system is entirely at odds with the world's value system. People whom the world regard as worthless, God chooses to inherit his kingdom. That's his grace. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus. God connects us to the glory of the Lord Jesus through his mercy. It's not because we are worthy. It's because he is gracious. God chooses people to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him. And his choice is unusual, it's surprising, and it's scandalous to the world. He chooses poor people. He chooses unintelligent people. He chooses uninfluential people. He chooses common people. He chooses weak people. He chooses lowly people. That's who God chooses to share in the glory of Jesus. That's who God chooses to be rich in faith. That's who God chooses to satisfy in the full and forever life he promises to his people in his kingdom. Christ himself, think about it, resplendent in glory for a time, left the glory of his place and became poor. He had no place to lay his head. In the end, he was stripped of everything of worldly value. He was humbled even to death, even to death on a cross. He was an outcast. There was nothing in his appearance to attract us to him. No beauty, no majesty, despised and rejected. And he did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for poor people. He did it for unintelligent people. He did it for uninfluential people. He did it for common people. He did it for weak people. He did it for lowly people. He did it for all whom God chose to inherit his kingdom. He bore all their sin so as to win them life. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich rich did Jesus only die for poor people no does God choose only poor people for his kingdom no that's not what James is teaching but Jesus did die for poor people and God does choose poor people for his kingdom and so folks how disgusting is it how evil is it when people who are saved by the mercy and grace of jesus decide that there are some who are less worthy than themselves of the very same grace and mercy that is disgusting that is evil that sort of favoritism that sort of partiality is evil when considered in the light of the grace and mercy of jesus and his heavenly father Again in verse 5, verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Well, Back in verse 4, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, can we, can we see it as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, saved by grace, saved by mercy. We are not to show favoritism. For Jesus, our Savior, is glorious. He is clothed in ma- majesty. And he does reign as Lord and King. And as his people, we must obey his royal law. And that's the third truth that James brings before us. In verse 8. Verse 8, if you really keep the, the uh, royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Jesus, our Savior King, rules us by his word, by his royal law. It's a mistake to think that law in the bible only applies to old testament believers it's an error to think that as new testament believers there is no law to obey it's an error to think that now it's all about grace and forgiveness and not about obedience that wouldn't make any sense at all there are so many commands in the new testament and there is so much grace and forgiveness in the olds it's a mistake to think that as New Testament believers, there is no law to obey. There is. It's what James calls the royal law. In other words, it's the law of King Jesus. It's not the same as the Old Testament law. It's the fulfillment of that law. We no longer live under the old covenant. We, We live now under the new. It's what James calls the law of freedom, the law of liberty. It's the law that is written on our hearts By the Holy Spirit. It is the law that is planted in us. We read about it last week. And at the very heart of this law, at the very center of this law, is love. Remember what Jesus said when he was asked which was the greatest commandment? It's in Matthew 22. You can look at it later. Jesus replied like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Loving your neighbor as yourself is at the heart of the royal law, at the the law of King Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 put it like this. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus, as our Savior King, he rules us by his word. By his royal law, and at the center of that law is the command to love your neighbor as yourself, to pursue for your neighbor all that you pursue for yourself it 's the royal law it 's the law of our king. So if we were to ask James James, hang on, why does this favoritism stuff matter so much?" He would answer, because to not show favoritism sorry to, to show favoritism is to not love your neighbor as yourself. it is to break the royal law and in verse 9 he says but if you show favoritism you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers see it matters to jesus because it's his law and we might dismiss favoritism as no big thing but it's as loveless as murder it's as loveless as adultery it is to break the royal law it is to sin It matters greatly. And so James concludes really where he began with a call to obedience. Point four and verse 12. Verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. In our speaking and our acting, we are to be obedient to the law of Jesus continually obedient. To use James' words back in verse 25 of chapter 1, we are to look intently and continuously into the perfect law that gives freedom and we are to obey it. We are to obey Jesus because Jesus is the king and we will be held accountable for our obedience to his law. It's true that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's true that he bore our condemnation in his death in our place. But it is equally true that there will be examination. There will be evaluation. We will appear before Christ our King, and our life as His people will be examined. Our deeds will be evaluated. And the measuring stick of His evaluation will be the royal law. And the essence of the royal law is love, it is mercy, it is compassion, it is kindness. And so James warns us with the utmost seriousness there in verse 13. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy, love, compassion, kindness, obedience to the royal law. These things are evidence that a person belongs to King Jesus. These things are the fruit of the presence of the spirit of the king in someone's life. And James is not saying, look, by our acts of mercy we earn salvation. He's not saying that. But he is saying that mercy and love, they are such fundamental characteristics of a Christian person. They are such fundamental evidence of the presence of the Spirit of Jesus. That if there is no mercy, if there is no love, then that person is an unbeliever and can expect only condemnation. See, it's serious, it matters. There's no room for the sort of nonsense you sometimes hear about, well, Jesus is my saviour, but not my Lord. If Jesus is not your Lord, he's not your saviour. To have Jesus as your saviour is to serve him as your Lord. There's not two Jesuses. To be saved by Jesus is to obey Jesus. We must be doers of the word. We must be obedient. And obedience is seen essentially in love and mercy shown to others. Love with no favouritism no partiality, no false distinctions, no superficial value system. Because, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's by our acts of mercy. It's by our acts of love. It's by the absence of favoritism and partiality. It's by those things that we show forth the fruit of hearts that have been changed and made right by the grace of God to anticipate where James goes next, and you have to come back next week. But through our mercy and love, we show that our faith is alive and not dead. We show our faith to be genuine, saving faith in our mercy and love. So, brothers and sisters, the command before us today is both simple and profoundly serious. As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ... Do not show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. You know, Mahatma Gandhi is uh, regarded as one of the most influential leaders, really, of the 20th century. And uh, he was actually, a few years ago, chosen by Time magazine as the runner-up, as the person of the century, second to Einstein. As a leader in India, his strategy and philosophy of Non violent civil disobedience continues to have a massive impact around our world. His humanitarian and political writings and teachings continue to be respected and studied today. Gandhi has literally impacted millions of people. And in his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi wrote that during his student days in London, he'd actually read the Gospels of Jesus very seriously. And at one stage, he was considering converting to Christianity. See, Gandhi opposed vigorously the caste system of India where people are born into a caste and the lower castes are discriminated against by the higher castes and you're locked in. And he thought that in the teachings of Jesus he could find the solution to the issues. He thought in the teachings of Jesus he could find the solution to the problems of India. So one Sunday, Gandhi, born a Hindu, decided to go along to a nearby Christian church and to talk to the minister about becoming a Christian. He entered the building and the church usher met him and refused him a seat. He suggested that Gandhi go worship with his own people instead. He left the church, he never returned, and he wrote in his his autobiography, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. Now that was an evil tragedy. That someone was prevented from hearing of the mercy and love of Christ through the unmerciful action of someone claiming to belong to Christ. Imagine the impact for Christ Gandhi might have had. And yet the usher turned him away because he decided that he didn't belong. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. I heard recently of a church not very far from here at all who had frequent visits from the town drunk. town drunk would arrive for church looking for shelter and warmth, smelly, ragged, poor, a bit embarrassing, a bit uncomfortable. And every time he came, the same church deacon would welcome him and sit with him and befriend him. What would you have done? My brothers and sisters, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we plead for your mercy. We plead for your patience. We ask your forgiveness for the times in which we've failed the royal law of Jesus. We're so grateful, Father, for the presence of the Spirit of Christ in us. So glad, Father, that you've written your your word in our hearts, implanted in us. And Father, we so much want to be doers of your word. And Father, we pray for ourselves and our church, that we would never be guilty of favoritism. Father, we would want to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. It's part of our love for you. But we struggle with this, Father. We struggle to go against the world in these things. And it's so easy to even deceive ourselves in these things. So strip us bare, we pray. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Father, please, by your spirit, by your word, in your grace, make us people of love. Make us people who do not show favoritism. And we thank you for choosing even us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.